It was uh, November 22nd, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. I was 10 years old. I was in fifth grade. I was walking home from school, and somebody told me as I was making my way to my house that the president had been killed. Though I was just a young child, I was shocked. I was hurt because he was our leader. He was our president, the leader of our country. And then the country went into a time of mourning and grieving when that took place. And so from a grief standpoint, that's where we were as a nation. But yet, in the midst of this grief, there was also a heightened awareness of other things that were going on in our country and also in our world. In our country, the civil rights movement was increasing. And as the civil rights movement increased, there was tension and there was violence that was happening throughout the country. Internationally, the United States and Russia were in the Cold War and it was escalating as each one was looking to have influence in the world and each one uh, was even looking to control parts of the world. And so there was some fear that was with that. And then there was the, the talk about this small country in Southeast Asia by the name of South Vietnam, that some things were happening there and American involvement was on the increase. And so it was a time in 1963 of where there was some fear, there was some anxiety, and there was some uncertainty. Well, if I can take you 2,700 years before that, there's a very similar situation found in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. If you looked in chapter 6 and you look at the very first verse, it starts out with this and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a very popular king. He had ruled in Judah for 52 years. And just to remind you that Israel was one and then they split and they became two. And there was Israel, which was 10 tribes in the north, and there was Judah, which was two tribes in the south. And King Uzziah was the king over Judah. And for 52 years, for the majority of his reign, they had enjoyed uh, prosperity, a lot of material success, and a lot of military success. And though he was popular, there were some things that were happening uh, nationally that were causing some concern. There was this new empire that was growing called Assyria. And uh, Assyria is kind of where northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey are. And they were heading westward. And they were coming towards Israel and coming towards Judah. And so as King Uzziah died, from a national standpoint, people were concerned because they saw this major power that was moving closer to them. But on a personal note... The prophet who wrote Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he had a close relationship with Uzziah. He was the prophet during his reign. Some people believe that he was there and was a scribe for him, a chronicler of Uzziah's records. And even some scholars believe that he was related to Uzziah. Some have even said maybe he was a cousin. So when it starts off and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, you got to understand that from Isaiah's standpoint, this was difficult. From a nation, they were going through a difficult time. And him personally, he's going through a grief process. And so 
in this time for him, it's a time of discouragement, it's a time of distraction. And with this frame of mind, he went to the temple to worship God, and he had a life-changing worship experience. Now, just as an aside of this message, is that whenever you think of Isaiah 6, and you think about the vision that Isaiah has at this time of worship, I want you to remember at least one thing, and that is there are going to be days when you feel like that I don't need to go to church. Either I'm distracted or, or I'm upset or whatever, and I probably wouldn't get anything out of it anyway. Use this story as a reminder that it's always a good time to come to worship God because it may be in some of your lowest moments or maybe some of your most confused moments that God will show up in a mighty way. And that's what he did with Isaiah. These were tough times, but he comes into the temple and he comes into the temple and he has a life-changing worship experience. So what does it look like? Well, I want to give you a couple of things out of this account that it can help us to see what a life-changing worship experience is. Number one is God's person is revealed. God's person is revealed. In chapter six, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah enters into the temple. And when he does, he has a vision. And he has a vision that takes him almost out of the temple and into the throne room of heaven. And he's there and he's in the midst of God. And when he describes it in here, he describes three things that he looks at when he sees God. First of all, he sees God's position. He says, that I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So we saw his position, that he had sovereign authority and that he is over all things. And when he says this, and the train of his robe filled the temple, the train of his robe filled the temple. During that day, the train of a ruler's robe would measure their status the hem of their robe or the train of their robe. And when he described this, he said, the train of his robe filled the temple. And so he is sovereign. He's over all things. Not only did he see his position, but he saw God's power. Because when he looked at his power, he is that he is towering above all earthly powers. He is above all. But then also you'll see God's praise. So you see his position, you see his power, but you see his praise. Because these angelic beings, the seraphim, they were praising him, saying, holy, holy, holy. And holiness is the essence of God's nature. Holiness is the essence of his nature. And so in this, 
in this vision that he has, in the midst of looking there and seeing the Lord high and lifted up, you are then drawn to these seraphim. And seraphim are angelic beings. In fact, it means burning ones, literally. And these angelic beings have six wings. And with these six wings, it says that that they covered two of wings, they covered their face, which shows awe and reverence for God. Two of them covered their feet, which shows humility. And two of them were flying, which showed that they were ready for service. Just that section right there is speaks volumes to you. How should we approach God? Man, same thing. There should be an awe and a reverence when we come into his presence. At the same time, there should be humility that we have. But on the other hand, we're ready to serve and say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. And so what these were doing is it says that they were calling one to another. And it says that the seraphim were calling one to another. The Hebrew phrase that actually means this cried to this. That means they cried to each other with alternate responses. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy. So it would be like the seraphim over here would go, holy, holy, holy. And then the seraphim over here would answer back and go, holy, holy, holy. And I see some of you can't picture that. So let me put it in your terms that you can understand. If you went to an Alabama football game or an Auburn football game, there would be times in the game to where the cheerleaders would be out there and they would get one side of the stadium and they'd go, Allah, Bama, Allah, Bama. Or at Auburn, they go, Auburn Tigers, Auburn Tigers. Well, they, we got that from the seraphim. Uh, that's where we picked this up. Because what they would do is they were going like, holy, holy, holy. And they're going, holy, 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 Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. Then they come down and said, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's going back and forth. And this is antiphonal cacophony of sound that is just surrounding this. And so in the midst of this, he's standing there and he's hearing all of this that's happening. And when they are saying, holy, 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 in Hebrew, that means it's a superlative. And that means we're saying this three times because we are saying it's the holiest of the holy. God is completely, totally, absolutely the holiest of the holy. Holiness is the essence of his nature. He is completely separated from anything that's profane or sinful. And it's interesting because when you look at the Bible, no other attribute of God is praised like this. Not love, not mercy, not justice, nor sovereignty. Just holy. We may fear God's power. We may admire his wisdom. But his holiness, we cannot even imagine He is an incomprehensible fullness of purity. And as he stood into his midst, in verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Their voices were so loud that all of a sudden the whole place began to shake. And it says like the doorposts and the thresholds began to shake, and then the cloud began to fill up into the temple. Now, back in Solomon's day, when they built the temple, after it was built, it says that God entered into that, and it was like a cloud, like smoke, and it was so thick, they couldn't even walk in there. And so he's in the midst of this, this smoke, this cloud, he's in the midst, and he's right there with God in this temple. You know, I I read that, and when it talked about the foundations were shook, you know, I think we need a sanctuary-shaking experience. We need a sanctuary-shaking experience. 
to where you come to church on a Sunday, and when you come to church on a Sunday, God shows up in such a powerful way that this whole place is like shaking over here. And you see, I thought about this, and I said, what if we had a sanctuary shaking experience, and then all of a sudden the smoke came? Well, you know, if the smoke came, you know what would happen, don't you? Smoke detectors would go off, and we'd all leave the building. The smoke would be in, but we'd be out. We wouldn't stick around. Man, i got to get out of here. And I began to think about that. And I believe that every one of us has an internal smoke detector that resides in the carnal side of our lives. And then when God's Spirit begins to move, and it may be in a worship service, it may be in a Bible study, but when God's Spirit begins to move, this smoke detector goes off as a warning device and it says, hey, hey, where there's smoke, there's fire. And our carnal side senses this movement of God's presence. And before you know it, the fire of the Holy Spirit could fall and could consume my life. So I better escape now lest God get a hold of my life and jettison me out of my comfortable cultural Christianity and take me down the path of self-denial. And just as you get to the edge of allowing God to do something incredible in your life, it's like this warning goes off and says, no, 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 you're a little bit too comfortable where you are right now. Don't fall for the Holy Spirit coming in and filling your life. He's going to take you down a path of sacrifice and self-denial. You don't want to go there. Abort, abort, get out of there, get out of there. Do something else. Turn on the TV, read something else, get out of here. And we stay away from it. And see, a sanctuary-shaking experience when that happens, one of the first steps that you got to make is you got to stay there and let God's Spirit speak to you. And that's what Isaiah did, and I'm thankful he did. He didn't run from it. He stayed right there. And when he stayed there, and he stayed in that, with that experience, he was, stayed there long enough to see the holiness of God, and his life was never the same because that took you to the second point, and that is that sin's presence is realized. Sin's presence is realized. And when he saw the person of God and he saw the holiness of God and saw that face to face, all of a sudden his, his sinful presence was realized. It says right here in verse five, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Listen, when we see God's holiness, it gives us a new self-awareness of our sins. When we see God's holiness, it gives us a new self-awareness of our sins. Now, as the pastor of the church and open up God's word and preaches, there are people that will say, oh, you stepped on my toes or, uh, you know, oh, that really got to me. And I appreciate that. That's not me. That's God's spirit. But you see, it's not the preacher up here trying to detail what sins are and trying to point out how bad they are or how each one of us have these in our lives and we need to repent of that. That's a part of it. But when you really get serious, serious, dealing with the sin in your life, it will come when you see the holiness of God. It's not the conviction of a fallen person and like one sinner coming to another person, one sinner talking to another sinner. It is seeing the holiness of God. And when we see the holiness of God, then our sin just jumps out. And we realize the ugliness of our sin. And when he saw God and his holiness, he says, I am lost. I am ruined. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. They're defiled. They're polluted. 
He says, I'm standing in the presence of angelic beings and with their mouth, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And I'm thinking about my own life as I'm sitting there, if I'm Isaiah and I'm saying, these are the lips that probably spend more time building myself up and then also tearing other people down. These are unclean, polluted lips. When I should be praising God instead of praising myself and I should be praising God rather than demeaning others. And he understood and he recognized his sin. But not only did he recognize his sin, but he also acknowledged that he lived in a nation where people were going further and further away from God. And they were. But what is essential in this story is the order of how verse 5 is written. Woe is me. I am lost. I have unclean lips. And I reside in a nation of people who are far away from God. He acknowledged his sin first. Too often what happens is that we say, well, we live in a world where it's tougher to live today uh, with a clean, pure life than ever. There's more temptations here than, than ever before. And we got a culture that, that's going to hell in a handbasket. And so we began to talk about other things rather than ourselves. And what Isaiah, when he was face to face, he saw the king, the Lord of hosts. And he did not take this opportunity to boast of what a good prophet he was or all the good things he's done. He didn't minimize his sin by saying, you know, you know, I am a sinner. It was different. I read a number of years ago about a Virginia Supreme Court. They awarded $200,000 to a man who lost an eye after he was struck in the face by a golf club that flew from his partner's hands. The court ruled that a simple statement, oops, it slipped, was not sufficient admission of wrong. And so they awarded $200,000. Isaiah is not voicing a simple, bland statement of, oops, I'm a sinner, but a wrenching confession of personal wrongdoing. And until we just don't sort of pass off our sin and say, oh, yeah, I just kind of messed up. That's okay. God will forgive me. Let's keep on going. To have a life-changing worship experience, whether it be here in a worship service or there in your home when you're having a quiet time, it is that you see the holiness of God and the holiness of God then convicts you of the sin that's in your life and you see it from that perspective. You see, what he did was he had a woe is me moment. And that is when you get a clear vision of the holiness of God. It's when you realize that your sin and the hopelessness of your situation and you confess it to God. It's when the light comes on and exposes the darkness in your life and you go, woe is me. Something has got to change. To move forward in a relationship with God, you need to have your own woe is me moment. That is when you have that clear vision of the holiness of God and a realization that you are a sinner. You admit it, you confess it, and when you do that, then God will do for you what he did for Isaiah. And in his mercy, God took action. When Isaiah says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner, I understand it. And then God didn't leave it there. He took the next step, and that's number three. God's pardon is received. When you have a life-changing worship experience, then you will receive the pardon that God has to offer. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And so there was an altar set up, and most people believe it was the altar that they used for sacrifices. So when you would sin, you bring your, your animal to the uh, temple, and they would sacrifice it, and that would be for forgiveness of your sins, to cover your sins. And so from the same place that, that sacrifices were being made, they took, a tong, uh, took with some tongs, took a hot coal, and in verse 7, it says, and he touched my mouth. He cauterized his lips. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So what happened? Your guilt is taken away. The slate's clean. You can be used again. Your sin is atoned for. That means that your sin is so covered by sacrifice that God can no longer see it. It's been satisfied. Your sin has been satisfied. The penalty has been paid. And God forgives it, puts it as far as the east is from the west, and you can move forward. A life-changing worship experience is when you see the holiness of God as you've never seen it before. And then you clearly see your sin and your brokenness as never before, and your response is not an, oops, I'm a sinner, everybody messes up. It is personal. You in your sinful condition, face-to-face with a holy God full of love and mercy. You confess your sin, you seek his forgiveness so that you can be in a right relationship with him. Because you were created for that. You were created to be in that right relationship with him. But because of our sin, it keeps us from being in that relationship. And so when you understand that and you see the holiness of God and there's this desire to say, I want to be in that right relationship with him, he doesn't come and bring a coal and stick it on your mouth. No, he reminds you of what he did 2,000 years ago when he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins where he sent his son, the only one filled with perfection and purity that could possibly atone for your sins and mine. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. He pays the penalty. He is the atonement for our sin. He's the satisfaction for our sin. And when God looked at that, and looked at his son who died on the cross. They took his body and they placed it in the tomb. And God saw that he had paid the ultimate price and he accepted that payment. He then reached down and raised his son from the dead, giving him victory over sin, giving him victory over death. And then he offers us that same atonement, that same payment for our sins, that same pardon. And... He places it in such a way that it's a grace gift that he wants to place it out there and said, if you will accept it, then you will be forgiven of your sins. You will come into a right relationship with God. You can live for him while you're here on earth. And then when you die, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. He says, I've laid it all out there. And he's done that. But then he's waiting on your response. Will you receive that pardon or not? I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your kids can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. It's an individual decision that you have to make. And you've got to make the decision to determine, do I want to spend eternity with God or do I want to continue to spend this world, what I'm doing in this world, and eternity completely separated from him? He gives you that opportunity to take all the brokenness that's in your life 
and began to put it back together and to be in a right relationship with him. And you can do that. And you can do it right now. And I'm going to give you an opportunity. Just in the middle of this message, we're going to stop for just a moment. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you, as you have listened to what I've said, and if I asked you today, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as a personal Savior? Do you have a relationship with God through his Son? And if your answer is no, in all your honesty, it is no. And yet you've understood today as you've heard about this holiness of God and where sin has you and you're ready to cross over that bridge and come in a relationship with God to have your life radically changed for now and for eternity. I want to give you that opportunity. I want everyone to bow their heads, close their eyes for just a moment. And if it's your desire to make that decision, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer and it's, I don't want to pray it out loud. I want you to pray it to the Lord uh, in, in, in your own spirit, I want you to pray this and say something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know my sin has separated me from you and from your Father God. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I ask that you forgive me of my sins and that you come into my life to take control of my life and allow me to live for you. Thank you for answering my prayer and for saving me from my sins and for assuring me that I will spend eternity with you in heaven when I die. Amen. I want you to look this way for a moment. If you prayed that prayer and uh, you said, you know, I've never asked him in my heart, I did that, that connection card that we have before this service is over, I want you to look on there. There's a place on there where it says, I prayed to ask Christ in my heart. Or there may be a place where you can check to say, I've got some questions. I'd like to talk to someone. And when this service ends, you've got two choices. Number one, when I ask people to pass that card across, you can pass it across. Guess what we'll do? We'll contact you, talk to you, pray with you, and, and rejoice with you, and help you with your next steps. Or when this service is over, you can take that same card, either bring it to me, I'll be standing here, or to any of our staff members or encouragers that will be at the exits up in the balcony and say, I just want to tell you, this is what I did, and we'll be glad to pray with you. You see, when that pardon was given, he received it. He received that pardon. And, uh, but that wasn't the end of it. The closing of this is what adds to this uh, life-changing worship experience is the next point, and that is number four, and that is God's proposal is responded to. God's proposal is responded to. You say, what is God? He gave his pardon. Once he received his pardon, look what he says in verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. What God said is who is going to be live sent? Who's going to be live sent? And Isaiah spoke right up and he said, here am I, send me. Now he didn't know the nature of his mission. He didn't know the extent of the mission. He didn't know the difficulties of the mission. 
He didn't really know what God wanted him to do. He just says, I need someone to go. He says, hey, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. But he was willing to venture out in faith, willing to put himself unreservedly into God's hands. Listen, God does not extend grace to us so that we will live a comfortable, no hassles, everything is rosy lives. He extends grace to us desiring that we would be faithful to the call of God no matter where he takes us. Now, if you were reading this story for the very first time, and I was sitting there in front of you and I was telling you this whole story, your question to me is, well, what happened? Man, what happened? I mean, I, I mean, just think about it. He's had this incredible experience and God says, I'm looking for someone to go. And he says, man, I'm going. And he says, I want you to be a spokesperson for me. Man, my first thought when I would have read that story, I said, this guy probably did some amazing things. I bet he became some evangelist that was getting out there and they were packing stadiums with tens of thousands of people. And he would stand up and he would say, I had a time where I saw the Lord and, uh, and I saw him in a vision and, and tell all that story. And as he tells that story, and he gives this invitation. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to make decisions for Christ. And Isaiah is just getting after it. I mean, he's preaching strong. Crowds are coming. They're responding to the message like never before. I mean, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, Billy Graham, if y'all remember, you know, when Billy Graham would do crusades and if he was in ever uh, in, a, in a church or a stadium, he'd you know, offer the invitation, say, come, come. And he'd look up there to the top and from the upper deck or from the balcony, you come, the buses are wait. And he always would tell you, the buses will wait. The buses will wait. I think Isaiah would have said, you come from the balcony, the chariots will wait. The chariots will wait. Don't worry about it. You come, you make your decision now. And people by the throngs are coming, making decisions for Christ. Incredible. That's not what happened. No. Okay, he says, send me. He said, man, I'm ready. Send me, I'm ready to go. Look at verse nine. In verse nine, and God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He said, you're going to preach the message I give you and you're not going to have any results. The people that are hard-hearted, they're going to get even harder. The people that are blind in their eyes, they're going to get even blinder. When you preach the message of truth, the people are going to fight it. They are so obstinately bent on iniquity that they're not going to believe these words. And you know what, Isaiah? They're not going to give you any regard. In essence, God is saying he's going to give the people over to their hardness of hearts. And God is saying, I want you to preach the message. And as the people continue to turn their hearts against you, there's going to be a moment where I'm just going to lift up my hands and say, I'm just giving them over to their hardness of hearts. That's your ministry for years you'll be preaching an unpopular message and you will not be getting responses that you would want. You will not be seeing the big crowds coming. You're going to have people, <clears throat> they're going to attack you and, uh, and, and they're not going to respond to your message at all. Well, uh, Isaiah did ask a question and then he said, how long, O Lord? You know, you... If I'm Isaiah, I'm kind of saying, is this like my first few years? And then everything's going to kick in and we're going to see that. He says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant 
and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What he's saying is that someone's going to come, they're going to take over. And they're going to take over Judah. And when they take over Judah, they're going to take the best and the brightest and they're going to spread you out all over this kingdom, all over the world. And this land is going to be desolate and will be barren. That's how long you will be sharing this message. Jeez. But, verse 13, and the Lord, and it says in verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, there's a remnant. So there's a little bit of hope. It will be burned again. Oh my gosh. So there's going to be this remnant, but then they're going to be invaded again. And they're going to be invaded again. And there's going to be desolation. And there's going to be burning. And there's going to be destruction. But then God gives him a glimmer of hope. He says, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. What that means is, you know, when you cut a tree down, there's a stump that's left. He said, but even like when you cut down an oak tree, there's a stump that's left. He says, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. Now, I read that and my mind went exactly where your mind went to, (laughs) Pirates of the Caribbean. I knew it. I knew you were with me, aren't you? Okay, how many of you have ever seen a Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you that have ever seen a Pirates of the Caribbean movie and stayed till the very end of the credits? Raise your hand. If any of you did not, you got to go back and watch all those movies. You know what happens on a Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the movie ends, and all of a sudden, you're kind of left there, and then the credits start rolling, and you go on and on and on and on and on. And, and if you're one of those lucky people that stay in the theater, all of a sudden, that last credit comes up, and something comes up on the screen. And for about 30 seconds, there's another scene. It's like this. God told him, everything, man, it's going to be bad, going to be bad. People aren't going to respond, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, he's sitting there watching the credits, and he's getting ready to leave the temple. And all of a sudden, the screen comes up, and the camera has got a picture of this desolate land. And then it begins to come in closer and closer. And you begin to see charred and and torn down trees and things. and, And then the camera focuses in, and it's zeroing in, and it's coming close to this one stump. And it's a stump where the tree has been knocked down and has been burned. And as you look at the stump, all of a sudden, this green sprout begins to come up from the stump. Screen goes black. Lights come on in the theater. And you sit there, and you're looking around at the people around you. You start nodding. You start smiling. And you know what you say? There's a sequel. Yeah, baby, there's a sequel. And you get jacked up because there's a sequel to the movie. And you're walking out of the theater humming the song. And it's in your blood. And you're fired up. And you begin to tell other people about, hey, this is going to come out probably next Christmas. Who knows when? But there's a sequel. And you begin to have this anticipation. And so out of all the bad news that he's got, he closes it by saying, and the holy seed is the stump. That means that this generation, these generations have been promised of Abraham, they're going to continue. And then there's going to be this messianic seed that's going to be there.
Listen, it's the same thing I told y'all back in Genesis. It's still going to happen. In Isaiah, no matter how difficult it gets, you need to know that I am faithful and there is a seed. Isaiah, I'm not calling you to success in the world's eyes. I'm calling you to faithfulness. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. So what does it look like for us to respond to God's call, to be live sent? Well, I want to call your attention to the screen, and I want you to see the story of one of our members, family, here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church, that are responding to God's call to what it means to be live sent. Watch this. We met at my work. I was working at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Alabama, and David was an auditor for Ernst & Young. We always, as a department, took breaks together, and he would kind of stay back and hold the door for me, and then, you know, I'm like, but he was real quiet. I mean, he is a quiet person. And, and then one day I was having a really bad day at work, and I said, to myself, you know, if that auditor is there today, I'm going to ask him to lunch. <laughs> and I did. And he asked me out on a date the next Saturday night, and it was history from there. We moved to Nashville in 2008, came back to Birmingham in 2013 and really thought that that was where we were gonna be for the rest of David's career. Very happy here, very comfortable here. Sarah's been settled in school at Briarwood now for four years, uh, doing really well. Uh, this is home for us. I mean, Birmingham practically is, is home. I grew up in Montgomery, but have lived a lot of my adult life in Birmingham. So kind of fast forward to where we are now, uh, 20, uh, 2017, and. Uh, late last fall, had an opportunity to come up and uh, frankly didn't have, uh, can't say that I had great interest in, in leaving Birmingham. Uh, just turned out to be in Columbus, Ohio, um, but it was uh, back in healthcare services where I've spent the vast majority of my career. And I'm like, looking at him like Columbus, Ohio. I don't like cold weather. I've never lived north of Tennessee. I'm an Alabama fan and God wants to put us in the middle of Buckeye country. I'm like, really, he's got a sense of humor. Um, we prayed about it. Family visited Columbus during the holiday. Still, I you know, wasn't convinced that's really what we, you know, what we should do. We were trying to figure out, you know, is this the thing for us to do? We've got a 12-year-old now. Is she, how is that going to impact her? How, you know, we really don't want to leave Birmingham, but, you know, what do we do? support church plants in all five of the North American Mission Board regions. Now, just want to let you know what that looks like. Uh, it has been said that if you reach the cities, you will reach the nation. If you reach the cities, you'll reach the nation. 83% of our population now lives in metropolitan areas. 
And so the major Danny preached his lip sent vision in January. I still remember you know, sitting there when he put the map up on the screen and he had Columbus, Ohio, you know, on that uh, on that map. And, uh, you know, that really spoke to me. Columbus, Ohio was on that list of sinned cities. And I think that just really sealed the deal for us. I think, man, this is what God wants me to do. And how can I? And I've got to move forward and, 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 and trust Him. And it's not easy to leave the comfort of where you are, but we don't know what's on the other side of yes and what other blessings God has in store for us there. Living said to me, as I think about it, is, is going where God is called you to go and living out your faith in the workplace. And I just want other people to know that freedom that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing in this world that's any better than being free. The rest of that story is that um, following that message, and as they came by and talked to me, uh, they wanted to be there to help with the North American Mission Board when they're planning churches in one of those thin cities. And so in Columbus, Ohio, uh, they contacted the church planning catalyst over there. They've been in discussions with him. And the, the way that God works is the exact same area of that city that they are planning to move is the exact same area they're getting ready to plant a church. And uh, they are contacting the church planter, and they will be amazing members that can join with them. And so, uh, David and Mary Ellen, where are y'all right now? I'm just going to ask you, just stand up. Just stand up where you are and find out where you are. I know you're here today. Somebody's got to wave to me, see where they are. Balcony, the balcony folks. Give a big hand. All right. <laughs> Thank you guys for sharing your story. We are, uh, we are going to commission them on uh, the third Sunday of July. Uh, their daughter will be going on our sixth grade uh, mission trip. And so them as a family, uh, we'll pray for the uh, whole trip, but also we want to set them apart. But... Um, I love her statement, we don't know what's on the other side of yes. That is great. We don't know what's on the other side of yes. What God asks for is faithfulness. And for us to say, God, will go where you want us to go, do what you, you want us to do. And so when you have a life-changing worship experience with God, it is when you see his person and you recognize his holiness. And then at that same time, you realize the sin that's in your own life and as you ask for forgiveness and confess that, then God provides that pardon and that forgiveness. But then there's also that next step, that proposal of, hey, I want you to follow me. And it may be moving to another city, moving to a, another country. It may be using you right where you are, wherever your work is, wherever your school is, and say, yes, Lord, I want to be used by you right there. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, um, that you are a God who reveals himself to us and that your desire is for us 
to be able to see your holiness, see our sinfulness, and make our commitment to you. I pray you'll guide us and lead us. Help us as each one of us during these closing moments of this service come face to face with you to make our decisions. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.